Well, we're coming to the end of our sermon series in the book of James. We have one week left uh, after this week, and then we turn to the Psalms in the fall. And uh, like I've said again and again, the book of James is a, is a very short letter. Uh, could have been even a kind of a sermon that he sent in letter form to all these churches. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Also known as uh, Camel Knee James because he prayed so much and he loves to talk about prayer as he did in this passage. So his knees were worn down like a camel. And um, he is writing to these refugees that are, uh, they used to live in Jerusalem. They're, they're almost all Jewish Christians. Uh, because of the persecution that came to Jerusalem, uh, they had to flee their homes. And now they're in these uh, cities around the uh, Mediterranean world. And uh, James is writing this letter to them. So it's somewhat similar to refugees in our day who are fleeing from religious persecution. Imagine someone from their home writing them a letter and encouraging them. That's what's going on here. And James basically ends by telling them, if you're suffering, uh, if you're sick, if you're cheerful, whatever the circumstances in your life, pray. Uh, Prayer is uh, a huge part of what James was all about. Um, he, He was praying his whole life. Um, his letter is filled with prayer. And I think this idea of, of being uh, sick or suffering and therefore praying is kind of gets to the heart of the Christian idea of prayer. There's a lot of different views of prayer, different uh, worldviews about what, what is happening in prayer. And I would say uh, a big part of what we believe uh, as Christians about prayer is that it's something you do because you're powerless as a human being, essentially uh, in the face of the universe and all the forces around us. Uh, we are powerless, and so we need to be uh, saved from suffering and sickness and raised up by God, to use the language of James. So that's one thing about it, is that it's something you do when you know you're, you're out of resources. And then the other thing is that it's relational. It's, uh, it's not impersonal. It's not energy. Uh, it's talking to a person when you're powerless and crying out for health. And that's essentially what prayer is. And I was introduced to prayer... Uh, in a way, um, when I was uh, traveling around Europe, and I was traveling with my wife Margie, and we were young, and so what we would do is we would just we would arrive in a city with absolutely no plans whatsoever. Um, we would get off the train, maybe even at 5 p.m., and we'd just go and look for a place to stay, like a hostel usually, and then if that weren't available, like a pension, and if that weren't available, a hotel, and uh, we had struck out, you know, maybe three, four, five times. We were in Florence. And uh, it was getting late, and uh, it was a little bit nerve-wracking just to think that maybe we would be sleeping on the streets of Florence. But I I looked over to my left, um, Margie and I are walking along with our backpacks on, I look over to my left, and her head is down, and her eyes are closed, and I know that that something weird is going on over there. And uh, so, this is before I was a Christian, so I said, "What, what are you doing? You know, we're in public here, people can see us. Are you praying right now? And, uh, and she said, yeah, I'm asking God for a hotel room. And that didn't make me feel any better about what was going on. So I said, is this like a, a vending machine where you put the money in and you pull the lever or push the button and, you know, the hotel room comes out? And she said, no, it's not like that at all. It's just that I'm scared and I'm calling out to my father for help. And uh, that, you know, that helped me. I had never really thought of prayer relationally like that. Nor had I thought about it in terms of just a human who's very weak and scared and frightened and anxious, just calling out to God for help. But that's really what, what prayer is. It's, uh, it's basically, you know, unhooking 
um, yourself from a little tiny portable charger that can kind of keep a smartphone going for a few hours. And then hooking into something like the, the Hoover Dam or the, the, you know, the Three Gorges Dam in China, which powers 10% of that country's uh, electricity. It's something massive, a massive power source is what you're hooking yourself into. When, when James says that prayer is powerful, it's not because he's powerful. It's not because anyone that's praying is powerful. It's because you're calling out uh, in helplessness to a very, very powerful God who, who wants to hear you. And, and so often we rely on our own uh, smarts or our own wit or looks or competence or health or wealth or the friends we have, the connections we have. We, we don't realize how much we're relying on these little things. These very small resources. But sometimes you get to the point where you realize uh, you don't have much power. You don't have resources. And the people that James is writing to are definitely in that category. They're in a foreign city. They don't know the language very well. They've lost their job. They've lost their homes. They don't have connections. They feel stupid. They feel incompetent. And James is saying you need to call out to God. All the powers with him. Whether you're sick or you're cheerful uh, or you're suffering in any way. And God will raise you up. He will save you. And that's what I want to look at, is, uh, is prayer. And the, the two parts, number one, that it's powerful. It is powerful. He says it's very powerful, and it's working. Uh, and then number two, that it's relational. It's, again, it's calling out to God. It's not superstitious. It's not magic. It's talking to a person. That's what it is. So those two things. Uh, and first of all, verse 16, a very famous verse. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's not easy to translate that. That might not be the right translation, but it's something like that. That as uh, we are praying, uh, there is great power in that act of praying. So um, I'll just kind of leave that there for a second to think about whether you think that's true, that when you pray, something changes. I mean, that's what power means, is something is affected in the universe by prayer. And I've even heard people say, you know, maybe the most important power in the universe is people talking to God and that that is what changes things. And we have to be really careful about power here because a lot of Christians love to talk about the power of prayer. And the more they talk about it, sometimes it sounds like they're saying it's kind of an energy that they can wield like a raw power. Especially in some circles when they talk about the power of prayer, I fear they're thinking of themselves and a power that they have. And it's just a kind of an energy that they can use to do anything they want. In which case, you're talking about magic. You know, you're in Harry Potter world. You're talking about um, making people levitate or turning them into animals or making the Statue of Liberty disappear, something like that. That is not, that has nothing to do with prayer. In one of the, um, the Gospels that was written much later than the four legitimate Gospels, it's called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And Jesus, as a child... First of all, he curses a child, uh, causes a child to die, and then raises them back to life. And another thing he does is that he turns these little clay pigeons into real pigeons, just to kind of show off in class. And uh, that is not a, a true story from the life of Jesus. It was made up later. And um, you can see why. That's not what prayer is about. That's far from the kind of prayers that we see in the Gospels. Because the power in prayer is only the power for salvation. It is not the power to do magic tricks. It is not the power to show off. Jesus never showed off just to show that he had power. He was doing things only for the sake of salvation. And so in verse 15 you see that it says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. 
And isn't it interesting that the word is translated save? You would think it would say would, will heal the one who is sick. But what James is saying is that um, salvation is this much larger thing, much more holistic thing than, than just saving a person's soul. That it, it includes sickness. It includes um, spiritual health. It includes psychological health. It, it includes physical health. That when the Bible speaks of salvation, it can use all those different aspects. Um, all those different aspects of meaning can be used in the word salvation. So um, salvation, where it says God ra- will raise him up, that's, that's the same idea of raising up into uh, a realm of wholeness, uh, flourishing fullness. And so salvation in the Bible is restoring life. Uh, life abundant, life to the fullest. Whether, again, whether that's biological or spiritual, uh, that's what salvation is. And that's the way that prayer becomes powerful, is when it hooks into salvation. And so when you look at the Gospels and look at what he did, think about the miracles of Jesus. Now, there were certain ones that revealed who he was. Okay, You have the, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the calming of the storm. Those are more revealing who he was. But generally, the, the miracles in the, in the Gospels... They're either about physical life uh, or mental, psychological, or spiritual life. They're all about salvation. So he made the water into wine. That's, that's a part of physical life. He fed 5,000 people. So he's, he's actually making um, things for us to enjoy, to consume, food and drink. He, uh, he healed the blind, people who could not walk, um, people who were lepers. They were untouchable. If you touched them, you would, uh, you would get their disease. He healed them. He healed people all over. The, everywhere he went, he would heal people. People who were mute. People who had epilepsy, he healed them. But he also performed lots of spiritual miracles. He cast out demons. He forgave guilt. Of course, he conquered the grave. That's a spiritual life that he was giving to the world. So when you pray... You're aligning yourself with the power in those stories. You're kind of hooking into what he, he did and has always been doing since that time. It's what he started doing there and is continuing to do uh, to this day, which is to bring salvation to the planet. Salvation in a holistic sense. And that's what the prayer of faith means in verse 15. The prayer of faith, uh, we've got to be careful again here, uh, a lot of Christians will interpret that as the strength of your faith is what makes the prayer powerful. And so the idea there would be that if you pray, believing enough that it will happen, then it is more likely to happen. It's, uh, it's a dangerous, uh, to the point where it gets dangerous, to the point I would, I would call it heresy. When you think that by imagining something or speaking something into being, that that will make it happen, you're not talking about Christianity anymore. You're talking about magic. And sometimes you see it slip into that level. The word of faith movement, for instance. But the, the prayer of faith here is not the strength of your faith. It's what, you're, it's what you're praying about. It's what your faith is in. Which is, once again, which is salvation. It is not about acquiring a private jet. There's a, there's a, a preacher out there that you can see a, a video of, a YouTube video. Famously, is, he's praying, he's asking his people to pray for him to acquire his third private jet. To fly around the world and do his ministry. And you're not hooking into power there. Um, It's not about conquering your enemies or achieving fame. Uh, The power of prayer is for deliverance, for liberation, for salvation, for life. That's where it becomes powerful. Because that's the prayer of faith. You have your faith in the right thing. 
I saw a um, story this week about an uh, African-American pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, who met uh, a member of the KKK who had been to Charlottesville. And uh, I don't know how they got to talking, but um, eventually the pastor and his church just began to pray for this man. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And eventually uh, they baptized him and welcomed him into their congregation. Now that's, um, that is the power of Jesus that James is talking about. The, the prayer uh, that brings power in its working because it's deliverance. It's deliverance from hatred and racial superiority. Um, you know, you pray for um, all sorts of deliverance from sin and from any kind of suffering. Whether it's uh, clinical depression, you pray and pray against that. Uh, crippling anxiety, uh, self-hatred, those things you can pray about. Hatred of Republicans. I mean, I'm serious. Like, some of you actually need to be praying about your hatred of Democrats or Republicans, especially in this political season. Greed, sexual autonomy. We, we pray against all kinds of human, whatever disintegrates a human, whatever causes a human to perish. So a young girl with a high fever, a young man with diabetes, uh, an old woman with no hope beyond death, that's more spiritual. A teenage boy who feels life is meaningless, Again, more spiritual, but all these things are, that's how we pray. And that's when it becomes powerful, is when you're, you're hooking into the salvation of Jesus. You look at verse 16, you see the connection between uh, the spiritual and the biological. James says, uh, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, confession and healing, confession of sin and healing are tied to one another. When I was a young pastor, uh, I would go sometimes with the elders to pray for someone. So we'd go over to their house and pray. They were sick. And uh, a lot of times, one of the elders would say, before we pray for you, uh, brother or sister, um, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Some of you might know about this practice. It really surprised me. I had never seen that before. And I even thought it was a little harsh that you would ask someone you're about to pray for healing and, and ask them if, uh, if they have any unconfessed sin. But now I realize, you know, it's coming from the Bible. It's what James was talking about. And I think what he's saying is that uh, confession of sin and healing can be very much linked together. Just as sin and sickness are linked, uh, take an explosively angry person. Someone who just uh, storms out of rooms when they're criticized. They cannot have any kind of conversation that's hard without just blowing up, walking away. Um, that sin, if you're explosively angry, is going to lead perhaps to heart disease or high blood pressure or strokes or eating disorders, obesity, loneliness, depression, anxiety, all sorts of things. You can say that about a lot of sin. Um, and so imagine a person like that confessing that sin and saying, you know, I've never admitted this before, but I really get so angry. I don't know what it is, but I just... I just get these flashes of, of kind of seeing red. I get so hateful towards people. If someone were like that to, work, to confess that, it would unleash so much uh, spiritual healing. And phys even physical healing. If they were to say that. And you, you might need to do that. You might need to tell someone, uh, maybe even tonight, just about something that you, some sin that you have that uh, is actually creating um, biological disintegration not just spiritual but it's affecting your health 
It's creating uh, terrible headaches or you can't sleep. You know, if you're harboring some kind of sin and you don't want to tell anyone because you don't want to give it up, if you tell someone that and confess that to someone, there can be healing, which is why James says that about confessing your sins and receiving healing. They're, they're very much tied together. It's very holistic, as I keep saying. And it's not just individual. A lot of times evangelical Christians get really hung up on the individual sin and the individual being sick. But uh, James sees this in a very corporate way. So salvation is not just about uh, isolated individuals uh, going to heaven. It's also about um, a, a society or a culture or a nation being delivered from some corporate sin. And so in the case of uh, Elijah, verse 17, you might be surprised to read there that he prayed for drought. In fact, he prayed fervently for drought. He was begging God to bring drought. Now, why would anyone pray for drought? Why would anyone pray that there would be no water and perhaps even death? You know, is Elijah cruel? Uh, Did he hate his people? And obviously the answer is no. He was praying for drought because he wanted the nation to wake up. He wanted there to be a wake-up call because King Ahab, the king of Israel, was basically making sex into a god. And so he had set up these uh, god and goddess Baal and Asherah uh, of sex right at the heart of their worship. And so sex had become a commodity. You can imagine how much women were being... Uh, objectified and abused, treated like objects. And so Elijah is praying there for the whole country, not just for individuals, but for deliverance from an entire country's sin. And you can just imagine applying that to us today and the way that America is sinning in so many corporate ways. And I love how, um, you know, that wherever that basket is right now of prayer requests, um, I'm going to get those prayer requests after church. And I just love looking through them. And even more, I love it on the prayer meeting when we pray for them because there are so many different variegated aspects of salvation that y'all pray for. And you really do do a beautiful job of of praying for salvation. I have not seen a single one where they ask for a private jet or a swimming pool or anything uh, like that, a luxury car. There's, There's requests for physical healing. There's requests for spiritual healing. There's individual requests. There's corporate requests. I'm going to read some of last week's Top ten. No, these are not the top ten. But I'm just going to read some of last week's prayer requests. I thought it was a a good example of all these different kinds. Think of those four categories. Physical, spiritual, individual, and corporate. That all women will be encouraged and built up. That all women would be encouraged and built up. For a 13-year-old boy who is experiencing depression and suicidal thoughts. For patients in the oncology ICU where I work. For healing of divisions in our country, that I would see every moment as a holy gift from my creator, poems, coffee, walking barefoot in the grass, for support for refugees in our country, for my brother to return to faith, for endurance amidst anxiety and depression at the end of a pregnancy, and then I love this one, I need friends. That's all it said, I need some friends. And that's just a very honest, powerful prayer. Because their loneliness is something to pray against. That's part of God's salvation is to deliver us from loneliness. And so that's all point one. The prayer of faith will save. God will raise up. Pray for one another. You may be healed. Prayer has great power as it is working. I hope that encourages you to pray uh, and ask God uh, for power when you ask for things. That you could see great power occurring. Number two is 
that prayer is relational. So again, just one more time to make it clear, when we say power, we're not talking about something abstract or impersonal. This is not the force. And I know that there are a lot of Star Wars fans out there. And whenever I refer to Star Wars, I get a little nervous because they're such big fans that they correct me afterwards. But I just saw the last one. I don't even remember the name of it anymore, but the very last one. Not the Han Solo one, but the last one. Um, and, you know, in the Force, they make objects fly around. They put out their hand, the lightsaber comes, and they go like that, and the guy starts choking. And a lot of times we can think of, again, like spirituality in that sense of these powers that we have. Uh, Luke Skywalker says, uh, Mark Hamill says, terrible quote, terribly acted, the balance of energy between all things that binds the universe. That's what the force is. The balance of energy between all things that binds the universe. And I just want to say that whatever that is, that is not the Christian view of prayer at all. For all its merits that it may have, that is not what James is talking about. It's a different conceptual universe from what James is talking about. Uh, James is talking about a conversation. He's talking about a relationship. He's talking about you speaking very naturally and plainly with your creator. Because behind all these different concepts is this idea of a Lord. Verse 14, in the name of the Lord. And verse 15, the Lord will raise him up. So the prayer herself doesn't have the power to raise the person up. The prayer talks to the Lord and the Lord raises up. The Lord has the power. And when I became a Christian, I was living in a a lonely universe where I believed that it was just me and my friends and my family. And that was great, but other than that, there was nothing. That there was no person, when I was alone, there was no person to talk to. That being alone was like a really terrible thing. Because when when I was alone, I was very uh, very scared. Uh, When I would eat alone, I hated that idea. Being alone on a Saturday night was really scary. Um, you know, going to the cafeteria and just sitting down alone. Uh, these were terrible things. But then, uh, really at the essence of believing was that this Lord enters into the picture. And so now I believe there's someone out there uh, that's greater than me. And so, again, when I'm talking about the power of prayer, it's not about developing spiritual powers of concentration or meditation. I'm talking about simply talking to a person who is very powerful who loves to hear us and he loves to respond. And so prayer is radically egalitarian, at least in the way that James views it and the way that the New Testament views it and the Old Testament. It's very, very egalitarian. There's no hierarchy of prayers because God doesn't have any favorites. It says in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You know, you might have thought the whole stuff about the elders meant that the elders were better prayers But that's not what it says at all. It's saying that they pray for one another, they confess to one another. The elders are just representatives of the church. It's not their special prayers. Essentially, James wants the whole church praying for one another individually. And so I think it's a beautiful idea of the most seasoned elder and then this brand new convert confessing sins to one another. You know, how how egalitarian and in a way democratic is that? Or the idea of a 15-year-old girl praying for an 80-year-old man. That's what James is saying. No matter who you are in the whole church, I want you to pray for each other. I want you to confess your sins to one another. And I love how 17 really like, makes this point even more strongly. This, this verse would have shocked James' readers. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
Now, Elijah would have been the, the Superman of the Old Testament. To a little Jewish boy, this was the greatest superhero, the wonder worker. He called down fire on the prophets of Baal, and they all died. In verse 17, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. And then as soon as he prayed, the heavens broke open with rain. So Elijah is the quintessential man of prayer. And now James, the entire point of mentioning Elijah is to say that he's no different than you or I. That when, when Elijah would pray, he, his mind would wander. He would fall asleep when he was praying. Uh, sometimes he wondered if there was anyone listening to him. And lest you think that in the New Testament everybody got better at praying and that somehow the Holy Spirit came and so everything changed with prayer. No, Paul says the same thing about himself. He, um, he says this to a crowd of people in uh, the little town of Lystra. He and Barnabas were being treated as demigods, like these spiritual superheroes. And Paul says exactly what James said in Acts 14, 15. We are just men of like nature with you. Do not put us on a pedestal of like nature. And so the, the good news is that there are no Jedis. And there are no gurus. And there are no bodhisattvas or monks. We're all just talking to God. Every single human being. We are all made in the image of God. To talk to God. And there's no better and worse. We all have the same access to God. Whether it's uh, me or you. Or Elijah or Paul. I actually love praying with someone who's a brand new believer. And has really never done this out loud. And the, the way they pray is so beautiful and so simple. And they don't use all the religious language. And actually, I find that to be the most powerful of all prayers. But to God, it's not. They're all the same. Uh, It's just his children speaking to him. Now, having said all that, uh, there's a a clear objection that you might make if you've been reading this carefully. In verse 16, um, the objection that I had when I was reading this was, I like what you're saying. I like what I'm writing. I like what I'm saying. But it does say in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman, a righteous person. And so when that little word righteous is thrown in there, I know a lot of you with sensitive consciences and you're saying to yourself, I'm not righteous. And so my prayers are not powerful. And I don't know about you, but for me, I know that my prayers are very, very unrighteous because for one thing, I resist it. Just like you, I, I don't want to pray a lot of times. If I have a really, really good book that I'm reading, and it's between that and prayer, or a basketball game that I'm going to watch and prayer, or a snack and prayer, I can tell you most of the time that prayer is going to lose that fight. It, it's a battle. Uh, I, I, I start praying, I lose interest. Um, I often call out to God like you do when I'm in trouble. And so he becomes kind of like a vending machine because I only call out to him when I'm in need. And then even when I get to God and my my prayers are very self-centered, they really kind of orbit around my life. And I pray greedily and foolishly. And so going back to the, the objection would be, okay, I can understand that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, but not the prayer of Ben Milner, not the prayer of you. Because we're, we're not righteous. And prayer actually just makes it more clear we're not righteous. And I think that the answer to that objection is in verse 14, 
with this really strange idea of oil, which makes a lot of Presbyterians very nervous. And uh, those of us from the Reformed tradition in general don't like uh, things that seem superstitious or magical. And this thing about the oil makes us very nervous. But here's what James says. He says, let the elders pray over the sick person and they anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. I used to take a big thing of olive oil and just put it right on the person's head. And uh, then someone showed me, actually, you can just take a little bit and go like that, and that works the same. And then all those people had all, all the olive oil I felt really bad about. But uh, we do that as elders. But my point in mentioning the oil is not that it is, um, has a special power. It's not like from some grove in, uh, in, in Judea or the, the Garden of Gethsemane olives or something like that. It's not about the actual olives. It's not a potion. It has no magical properties. It's not extreme unction. It's not a sacrament. Uh, the, the thing about oil in the Old Testament, whenever you look at oil, um, and it can be very ordinary oil, it's, it's consecrating something to God and setting it apart as no longer ordinary but extraordinary. And so if you look in the creation of the tabernacle, there's oil that is put on a lot of normal stuff to make it not normal. So Exodus 40.10, anoint the altar and all the utensils with oil. And the washing bowl, anointed with oil. And why do you touch those things with oil? Because it says that they are separate to God. They're in a different category. They're holy. So when the elders come to someone's house and they put the little oil on their forehead, um, what they're saying is that this person, uh, we're trying to convince you that you're righteous, that you're set apart, that you're holy, that you're like the Ark of the Covenant or the breastplate of the holy high priest that you are in a different category. And you need to know that as we're praying for you, that you're righteous. And it's not a righteousness that is earned. Uh, It is not a righteousness that you achieve through lots of praying. It is bestowed on you just as oil is is given to you. It's just put on your forehead. Um, And Luther called this, Martin Luther, an alien righteousness. Not because of some kind of uh, creature from outer space because it's it's not yours it's not inside of you proper it is outside of you and it is imputed to you it is simply ascribed to you it's just because god says that you're righteous and he says that you're righteous because he's giving you the righteousness of his son who was the the perfect prayer uh, jesus christ became a human to pray to pray perfectly uh, he loved talking to his father he looked forward to talking to his father. To have met him and seen the way that he prayed would have been like seeing an alien. You wouldn't even be able to believe that this man would pray like that. He didn't want to stop praying. He yearned to pray. He was never selfish in his prayers because he knew how much his father loved him and he wanted to be in the presence of his father. And what did he get for all that great praying? What did he get for all that righteousness? Uh, he was cursed, he was crucified. And he ended up saying that the last thing he ever said was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And sometimes you can say all of his prayers were unanswered. At the end of his life, he was cursed and rejected. And he did that so that we who pray so selfishly, where we're so slow to start and so quick to end, so that we could be called blessed and righteous. So that he could say to you and to me that you are a righteous person And your prayers have power. And the only reason that he can say that about us is because of this amazing meal where he gives us his righteousness and he takes all of our cursedness.
All of our unrighteousness. All of our lack of desire to pray. And he just says, bring it all to me, and I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to give you, I'm going to bestow on you and impute to you. And I'm going to say about you what you're really not, that you're righteous. Because you're receiving the righteousness of my son, who is the perfect prayer. And I always have to say, uh, before we come to this table, that it is a radically egalitarian table. Again, God has no favorites. The only reason you would not partake is because you're not really sure that's true, what I'm saying. And I can understand that because it seems too good to be true. It seems impossible to be true, like some kind of fairy tale. So I understand that. And if, if you're not in a position to say that I really, I really believe this, then uh, don't feel any pressure to come and do this. I don't want to force anyone to be a hypocrite. But on the other hand, it's not like you have to have a massive amount of faith or understanding or awareness of what's going on here to take this. If you really want this, if you really want the righteousness of God to be given to you, if you know that you need to be forgiven and you want to have him call you righteous, then by all means, come and partake. Um, And so, on the night he was betrayed...